You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. They offer just about every battery under the sun, from car and truck batteries to batteries for your trail cameras and rangefinders. Select retail locations even offer cell phone repair and cracked screen repair. Find a local retail location at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. You're listening to the Average Conservationist Podcast, brought to you by Go Hunt and in partner with 2% for Conservation. Sign up today to become an insider at GoHunt.com. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitments as popular brands like Sitka, First Light, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their community for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at Fish and wildlife.org that's fish and wildlife.org happy thursday everyone welcome back to the average conservationist podcast and i'm your host marcus ewing uh <clears throat> before i get into today's guest i just want to Apologize, I am a bit under the weather uh, as I'm doing this editing and recording for this. Um, any of you out there listening with uh, young children uh, in school or daycare uh, know what it's like to constantly be fighting off germs <laughs> that they bring home. So I'm a little nasally, I'm a bit congested, uh, so I apologize for that. Uh, but today, we uh, on the podcast, I have Will Marcord, and Will is the president of 2% Certified Davis Tent. Uh, <clears throat> Will and I have uh, a really awesome conversation kind of about a lot of different things. Um, obviously, we talk about Davis Tent, uh, how they got their beginnings, uh, and really a, a pretty cool story on how what started off um, making saddles um, and a really a custom request turned into, uh, what Davis tent is now. Um, I'll kind of, I'll let you listen and, and hear Will tell the story. 
but yeah, to see you know where they've come <clears throat> in their time uh, is really remarkable. And you know, for me, and Will and I kind of talk about this uh, when I think about like canvas tents uh, and things like that. Um, maybe it's just the outdoorsman in me, but I, I automatically go to uh, like wall tents, uh, backcountry type, you know, base camps and, and things like that. And uh, particularly, particularly uh, maybe in the later season um, when it's a little bit colder um, and you need something to kind of trap the heat in, uh, you know, get a stove and whatnot in there. Um, but Will talks about really all the different uses that a lot of their customers have um, from, you know, weddings and festivals to uh, something that's really kind of become pretty popular in the past decade or so, uh, which is glamping. Uh, so we get to talk about that. Uh, we really get to spend a good amount of time um, talking about kind of the culture of the company and why they are able um, to hold on to so many of their employees and, you know, why they're able to kick out uh, such great work and, you know, really the fact that, you know, they've been back ordered uh, on tents for the past, you know, year and a half, I think just speaks volumes to uh, the quality uh, that people have come to expect out of Davis Tent. Um, and then on the conservation side of things, uh, we certainly get to talk about, um, you know, why the, 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 the conservation uh, aspect of the business is so important. And really, Davis Tent has been 2%, 2% certified long before uh, 2% for conservation was really even a thing. I mean, they've been you know, giving back and doing their part with wildlife uh, really for as long as the company has been around. Um, so it's really cool to see and, you know, actually becoming certified um, was really just kind of a formality for them uh, at this point. So uh, really cool conversation. I think you guys are going to really enjoy this. If you're, uh, you know, in the market for a wall tent for uh, whatever it is that you're going to be partaking, and I, I highly suggest uh, looking into Davis Tent. Um, good people, good American-made products. So, episode 81, Will Marcord, Davis Tent. Um, before that, I want to tell you about our friends over at Wild Rivers Coffee. And, I mean, I've said it once, I've said it, you know, five dozen times. Uh, Wild Rivers Coffee uh, is awesome. <laughs> I mean, just kind of plain and simple. Um, they are the lifeblood that fuels the Average Conservationist podcast. Um, I'm drinking, you know, multiple cups a day just because it's it's that good. I, I I have a hard time even keeping it in in stock in my own home just because I go through it so quickly. Um, and at Wild Rivers Coffee, they are roasting in small batches so that they can ensure that your coffee arrives at its peak freshness. Uh, Wild Rivers is also a proud partner with 2% for Conservation, and they believe in preserving the wild places and wild things that bring all of us so much joy. That's why with everything they sell, a portion of proceeds are being donated back to conservation organizations that are near and dear to them. So head over to wildriverscoffeecode.com, order your fresh roasted beans. They got really cool handmade mugs, ton of different accessories for grinding uh, your own coffee, French press, pour over, uh, however you like it. Uh, And also... Um, some really cool merchandise as well. Super cool shirts, super cool hats. Uh, you guys can't go wrong really with anything you pick up. And right now through the 21st, which is about the last day, uh, that they think that they can get product, uh, to you before the holidays. Uh, if you spend $75 or more, 
uh, you're going to get a free bag of coffee of your choice on them. So all you have to do is add stuff to your cart. You hit that $75, pick a bag of coffee. When you go to checkout, there's no code needed. When you go to checkout, it's going to show that that's their holiday um, 2021 promo, and that bag is going to be free of charge. So if you're looking for some last-minute gifts, friends, families, coworkers, whatever it is, uh, Wild Rivers Coffee is going to have you covered. So again, head over to wildriverscoffeeco.com. All right, joining me today is the president of 2% Certified Davis Tent, Will Marcord. Will, how are you today? I'm great, Marcus. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I know, uh, especially this time of year, uh, you know, whether you own a business or run a business or in a business, um, just the, the, the holiday aspect of things always makes things uh, super busy. Uh, time can be uh, a very high commodity uh, this time of year. So I, I appreciate you making some time on this, uh, on this Thursday morning here. Oh, yeah. With my crew around here, it's, uh, it's more like, how do you run a business when everybody's out hunting? You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, like, wow. I mean, there's a, uh, yeah, you're not the first person I've heard uh, say that, that, you know, if, if we want to try to get something on the books or, or get something scheduled, uh, hunting season is definitely not the time to do it because everyone's just so short staffed because everyone saves all that vacation, PTO time, whatever it is, um, you know, for September, October, November, you know, even into December here. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting management challenge because, you know, to have the, to do what we do and to be involved, uh, you know, the way that we want to be involved in the outdoor community and to, and to have people on our staff that are, you know, authentic in that manner. Well, you know, you got to figure out how to let them do those things, and uh, it can be it can be challenging. Yeah, and especially you know, you guys, I'm sure, you know, and we'll kind of get into this, but likely have a big push in those in those months leading up to to hunting season, right? Where everyone's trying to, you know, maybe get last minute gear. They've got a big, you know, seven to ten day hunt planned, where uh, you know they're going to need a tent, a wall tent, or something like that, and so you know they're trying to get all of that stuff. Uh, prepared and ready and not wait till, you know, a week before and go, oh, shoot, you know, I, I, we, we need somewhere to sleep tonight. Oh, no, for sure. I mean, and that is our, our busiest time is the third quarter uh, and then moving, you know, a month, October into the fourth quarter. Uh, and so, yeah, we're, we're at our busiest and uh, serving, you know, the most most customers that are in need of something right now, right when we're out of the office the most. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, so tell me about Davis Tent, you know, like, uh, I guess really kind of the whole story when it got its start, you know, and, and really everything that it is that, uh, that you guys are producing over there. Yeah, you know, uh, it's a cool history here with Davis Tent. Art Davis uh, started Davis Tent, and uh, he actually started a saddlery shop, Art Saddlery, uh, and he made three saddles. And he had some background already in sewing canvas. And somebody came to him not to buy a saddle, but said they wanted a tent. And so he sold one of the, he traded a saddle for a sewing machine. <laughs> and then he traded one of the other saddles he made for canvas and thread. And he made that tent and he thought, you know, this is a lot easier than making saddles. <laughs> So he uh, he started making tents, and that that third saddle still exists today, and it's in our shop. Uh, he never sold that; he kept it, but it was the last saddle he ever made, and uh, that was kind of the genesis of 
how Davis Tent got started and uh, grew through the through the 70s and 80s, and then the second generation of Davises uh, came in and really did some, you know, some important things like getting involved early online. Uh, you know, we're talking about the late 90s when you were uploading pictures with dial-up internet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember yeah. those times. <laughs> Unbelievable. And uh, that really set the stage for, you know, kind of the future development and of the business to be not just a, you know, a sleepy little Colorado company, but, you know, a company that was serving uh, maybe the majority of outfitters in the Mountain West, uh, having some of our biggest, you know, states as far as people that use our products being outside of Colorado. And then eventually uh, a third generation of uh, Davis is, is Chris Davis, who's the production manager here. And uh, he's uh, been here, well, Chris is in his 30s. I think he claims a start date of sometime around 10 years old. So, <laughs> yeah. So he's been here. He's been around the business and working in the business, whether it was summers. Uh, and then eventually, uh, you know, right after he got out of school, uh, came to work in the business. So he's been around it for, for 20 years. And, you know, it's uh, right from the start, Art was, very supportive of the outdoor industry. And so, and, and right from the start, you know, all the Davises used all the products. And so the development was done around what they knew had to happen to make a quality product that would stand up in the outdoors. And so, yeah, today we're, uh, uh, have, uh, the third generation of Davises, uh, right here, uh, making sure things are always done the same way they always were. And, uh, from a quality standpoint, obviously we have some updates and materials and things like that, but uh, it's a it's a it's a pretty neat history and it's it's pretty dang authentic, you know. Yeah. Now, obviously, I think when when people, you know, if they're on fishandwildlife.org and they're looking at the different two percent certified businesses and and they come across Davis Tent, you know, uh, at least for me, and I got to imagine a lot of other people kind of fall into this camp, is that they immediately think of you know tents for like backcountry hunting or you know base camps things like that but you guys also make uh you know products that service kind of a lot of other industries too can you tell me about that yeah we do and and it's kind of it's kind of funny to talk about because at, at all at the same time we stopped making a bunch of products that had a lot wider uh birth as far as a marketplace went but then opened up markets that we hadn't uh previously served in our core area of making tents. So, you know, we stopped making awnings. We stopped doing things like boat covers and a bunch of specialty projects. And we focused on canvas tents. And that really allowed us to open up other areas in canvas tents, like beyond just your Western hunter. Uh, we really, uh, we sell across the United States today. I mean, there's a ton of guys that, Whitetail hunt, for instance, in uh, upstate New York, and uh, duck hunt in South Carolina and North Carolina, and I mean, you can add any of those whitetail areas, especially in the north, like uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Minnesota. And uh, so, it opened up a lot in the hunting industry. And then at the same time, we found ourselves making a lot more family camping tents uh, for people all across the country. Uh, and then today, 
uh, fully 30% of our business is in the glamping industry. So uh, we're the leading glamping tent maker in the country. Uh, you know, we make, I don't know, 800 or so tents that go on platforms a year. Wow. Uh, that are used, yeah, that are used as rental uh, tents. And, you know, we do a few things different in that industry to, you know, tailor things to you know, what makes a tent work in the glamping industry. And so, you know, we are really focused on the tent industry. Uh, we kind of, we do make some tack and, uh, you know, there's a long history of uh, horse packing and meal packing uh, for the Davises and people that work at Davis Tent. But, you know, other than that tack, you know, things like panniers and bed rolls and things like that, our focus is the tent industry and being you know, really the best tent maker we can be. Yeah, and that's interesting how, you know, when you stopped making uh, specialty things, right, where you kind of, and this is, you know, me kind of making assumptions here, but, you know, if you're making things like um, boat covers and awnings, right, I mean, there's those are kind of specialty uh, areas, specialty markets, and you think that, you know, maybe you'll kind of have a monopoly over those uh, or, you know, you hope to, to have a good market share there. But then when you step away from that and you say, okay, we're just going to focus on the 10 aspect, all of the other things that it opens up, like, you know, uh, hunting outside of the West, you know, here in the Midwest and the Northeast and, and things like that, where, um, you know, hunting has such a rich, rich tradition and deer camp and all those things. And then, you know, take that one step further. I mean, 15 years ago, glamping wasn't even a thing, right? I mean, it was, you had your six man Coleman tent that you piled the family into on a camping trip and like, and that was how you camped, right? I mean, at least that's how I yeah. grew up camping, right? And yeah. to to see how that market has evolved and how, you know, really, I would imagine you guys were kind of tailor-made for, for something like that. You know, you guys, you, you were already making tents, you know, you were just giving them a kind of a different application, I guess. Absolutely. You know, and we, as in any business, there's always, you know, there's some convergence between luck and strategy and, you know, all these things just kind of come together if you're ready for them at the right time. And one of the early adopters in the glamping industry was the San Diego Zoo, who to this day has a very successful glamping program. Really? And they come, yeah, yeah, they, it's called Roar and Snore. They have this outdoor wildlife <laughs> area with, yeah, with giraffes and elephants and all kinds of things. And uh, we, we were uh, contacted by them and we helped them get set up uh, in the glamping industry. And they're still a customer today. But what that allowed us to do was to really get in pretty early into not there was already some glamping happening, but this was really a develop, you know, it needed to be developed and changes made to make canvas tents work in a year round environment. Because, you know, a little secret in the, that people don't know about canvas is that a canvas tent top will only last two or two and a half years in the direct sun. Well, if you're a hunter, 40 years down the road, you probably only used your tent, what, 80 weeks maybe? Tops, yeah. Some, some, yeah, some guys 40, some guys maybe 120, but they still had life in that tent, and the grandson is using it or, you know, whatever. I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable. Well, you get into the glamping industry, and you've got some huge obstacles in long-term setups. 
like sun damage and like mildew. And so, yeah, there were many things that we were able to explore and kind of, you know, noodle around early on how you go about solving for those problems for, for this unique customer set that, you know, really gave us a platform as experts as glamping developed into, you know, what it is today, which is a pretty big industry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, even even if you look at some of these like RV parks and things like that, that, that operate, you know, most of the year, um, a lot of these places will maybe have, you know, two or three tents set up for glamping, right? You get a lot of the people that, you know, are pulling fifth wheels, motorhomes, things like that in, whether it's mm-hmm. a, a big family road trip or, you know, just a weekend away, they have stuff right. that's just pre-made and ready for people who, who don't have all of the gear, don't want to, you know, rent, uh, rent a trailer or rent a motorhome or whatever the case is. Um, so yeah, I can certainly see, uh, the, the obstacles around that, especially, you know, in, in somewhere with a warmer climate, right. Where you're getting that, you know, like San Diego where it's, you know, beautiful all year round. Yeah. You just hit the, you just hit the target right in the middle of what's happened in the industry. Originally you had small operators and then people, you know, start to grow businesses that might've been 10, 20, even 30, 40 or 50, 60 tents. And we still do a ton of that kind of business, but the real growth area that, you know, we've certainly seen in glamping is those RV park operators that want a mix of products. Uh, so they have a, maybe a cabins or tiny houses, maybe a yurt, and then they have tents as well as their RV hookups. Uh, because they're trying to have as much varied industry or uh, inventory to, uh, you know, to, to have out in the marketplace for different needs and wants of uh, people that, that, that might stay at their RV park. Yeah, you want to try to appeal to, you know, the biggest customer base as possible and just grow it from there. Yeah, and hopefully, you know, in time, add a couple more yurts or tents or, you know, tiny houses, whatever it is. And yeah, I mean, that's how that's how these small um, you know, parks, you know, they double in size over five years, 10 years, something like that. Yeah. And it's been really interesting. If you think about it, you know, just from a business perspective, uh, we went from serving, uh, a business in general, like a glamping facility where, you know, they were deciding between us and somebody else for tents. Uh, so you either did or you didn't to now we're in a situation where, our tents are part of the mix in a lot of places. So we're living alongside and coexisting with as the entire market grows inside of places like RV parks or mixed use kind of sites like that. So, you know, and on the one hand, it's, it's, it's a, a little bit of a, a dynamic change. And on the other hand, there's so much growth in the industry that we're uh, finding our way just fine. Yeah. Now, do you guys find yourself doing a lot of business with like rental companies? Um, I know like, you know, I think about like high school graduation parties, um, you know, uh, weddings that are, you know, outdoor weddings and stuff like that, where you're selling into like these rental places and they're, you know, using, you know, your tents, um, you know, to, to rent out to customers. Well, the market has developed a little bit different than that along those lines, but a little bit different than that. So, uh, in 2010, for instance, uh, I started a business called Outdoors Geek, and Outdoors Geek is what we would call a mobile glamping service. So Outdoors Geek goes and sets up 
you know, two, three, four hundred tents for music festivals like Coachella or Firefly, depending on what side of the country you're on, uh, or uh, Albuquerque Balloon Festival or Texas Renaissance Festival. So uh, that part of the industry where glamping meets sort of this mobile need that events, music festivals, weddings, like you mentioned, uh, where, where that's needed is commonly handled by somebody like Outdoors Geek, a mobile glamping company. Okay. So the, the big rental companies that do the big vinyl tents and whatnot, uh, that's really stayed in that market, and it's a real separate market for you know producing a glamping event or, or the glamping part of an event. Gotcha. Yeah, and that that makes total sense. And I guess I, when I was asking the question, or, or shortly after I it came out of my mouth, I would, I got to thinking that you know those are yeah usually not canvas. Those are usually the vinyl. But the the music festival or just festivals in general, I never really kind of thought about that side because you know I've been to some of these music festivals uh, and things like that before. And yeah, a lot of times, you know, you get you know people that that don't want to rough it right. They want to be able to kind of be luxurious while they're uh, yep. while they're out there spending, you know, like I think about like Coachella, for example, where it's, you know, depending on the weekend, I mean, you could get 100 degree, you know, temperatures all day and it, you know, dips to like, you know, mid 80s at night, which is still right really warm to be sleeping in a tent. And yeah, they want to be as comfortable as possible. Yeah. So those kind of tents uh, are outfitted with air conditioners. Uh, they're typically on platforms. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's really in in many ways the same concept as the hunting industry. And, and I've often said that the original glampers were hunters pimping out their canvas tents. <laughs> That's true. Wanted, yeah, it's true. I mean, they wanted a great home away from home, right? And, you know, that's the same thing that, that somebody at a music festival or festival or event, they want that home away from home, that hotel room type experience but they don't have to drive to it or ever leave the grounds. They just walk to the glamping area. That's, you know, where they're going to spend their night. And then they're, you know, back to the music festival uh, the next day. Yeah. So what does the process look like in, in creating uh, one of these tents? I mean, how, how long does it, does it really take? <laughs> you know, I got to tell a little story. I, yeah. uh, back, uh, oh, 12, 15 years ago, I built a cabin. And I just, uh, it was a thousand square foot cabin on some land I have in uh, northern Wisconsin. And I have a few friends and two of them are contractors. And so my brother and I got eight or nine of our friends together and he kind of general it. So he had everything delivered. We had somebody come and pour a foundation before we got there. We got there on a Friday night. We started building at 530 in the morning on Saturday and we locked the doors on Sunday. Wow. So we had the roof on, we had most of the siding on, we still had all the work to do inside. You know, the tenting, the, the, the contractor, friends of mine said, Will, I will never speak to you again if you tell someone how long it took. Because <laughs> this takes 90 to 120 days every time. Secrets out. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, tent making is a lot like that, right? Uh, you know, we have to do things efficiently. So, you know, we do, we batch things together. Uh, so there's a certain maturity of a number of orders that need to be done in a batch. And so there's a hold or a waiting time. And so, you know, the literal process of making the tent is probably faster than people think, but, you know, we've had back orders of over 400 tents for, 
uh, almost two years. Oh, wow. And so, you know, to get those into the queue, uh, you know, to get to get cut, that's the first process. You have to take the raw, the material off the roll and cut it. The next process is we have, we, we do what we call seaming, which is the double needle stitching that you see holding two pieces of fabric together, like over the top of your tent is where people often notice that. Right. And that's the next process. And we have, we, that, that process has three pieces to it. What we call the top, which also happens to be the sidewalls as well. And then it has the two ends, the front end and the back end. And so those, those parts end up, or the, that fabric that ends up in those three pieces. And then zippers get set, like on a front door. If there's a front door, it's always typically a front door zipper, uh, sometimes a back door zipper. And then once that seaming uh, and zipper setting is done, the tent gets marked, and that process is so our sewers understand, you know, they have landmarks to deal with. And then it goes to an individual sewing table. And one of the things that I think is super cool and kind of unique about what we do here is every tent that we make, once it gets past the point, that marking stage and goes to a sewing table is done by one of our, I'm just going to say it because I believe it, one of our world-class sewers. And that person finishes that tent themselves. So, that tent is entirely finished by one person. Every tent we make is signed by that person. Most people will never see that signature because it's in a very discreet area, but they take a lot of pride in that. And then the tent, once that's done, windows are put in, everything's sewn together. It goes to grommeting and folding, and it's ready to go out the door. So kind of cool. So did you guys see a big uptick over the past, gosh, almost two years now with the pandemic and like a lot of other, you know, outdoor uh, companies, you know, they, they saw just this, you know, with everyone trying to get outdoors because you couldn't go indoors, essentially, outside of your home. Um, a big, I guess, like influx of, uh, of orders and people wanting to, you know, just get out of the house and, you know, go somewhere different. Yeah, you know, it's really funny to even think about that time. On March 12th, 2020, I was at a trade show in uh, Central Oregon in the valley in uh, redmond so just north of bend uh it was wednesday my son had come up to help me finish setups and uh, that was wednesday night thursday morning we got an email before we arrived that it had been canceled and uh so yeah so we're 20 hours from home <laughs> with all of our stuff set up we took it down and i drove my son flew home i drove back with all of our gear and i thought you know, I mean, we know what happened now, right? We didn't know what was happening then. Right. And I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> we're in trouble. And, you know, it was about two weeks or three weeks when we really didn't know what was going to happen, I think, as, you know, the world digested what was going on. And then things just went crazy. And that's across the board, family camping, uh, hunting, glamping. Uh, it just went crazy and it really hasn't ever subsided since that time now we're not this last month was the first month in 21 that we actually made more tents than we sold uh but that's not uncommon 
that uncommon for this time of year. Right. But yeah, it, it really it it really has been absolutely off the chain. We expect things to you know normalize a little bit, especially in the hunting industry. Uh, glamping is on such a trajectory that you know it, it'll just continue to grow, and so it'll be interesting. And, and yeah, everybody wanted to get outdoors, and everybody wanted a tent. And you know, we were we were ten or twelve weeks out most of this last year because of the backlog that we were working through. So yeah. crazy, crazy times. Yeah, and I've heard that uh, with a, a lot of. Um, companies you know that are that i've spoken to on the podcast that produce some type of uh you know good or service that's kind of directly related to the outdoors is things were kind of gangbusters for a while right it was you know drinking from a water hose you couldn't you you were taking so many orders in that you i mean it was your your head was almost spinning right it was okay how it, it almost like like you said you had that two to three week period where shit what's gonna what's gonna how is this all going right. to unfold? What's going to transpire from all of this? You know, and then all of a sudden orders start to come in and then it's probably almost another week or two to figure out, all right, how are we going to, to really manage, uh, you know, this, this huge influx of, of orders? Yeah, we, uh, you know, it's funny because to this, to this day, and maybe even more now than ever, people think that our turn times have something to do with the supply chain. And, you know, that was the absolute first thing that I got after uh, and thought about on the way back from that ill-fated trade show in uh, Oregon uh, was, okay, this is going to be a problem. Uh, you know, one time I bought up every roll of fabric in the U.S. that qualified to make one of our tents because <laughs> this was, I knew that if I didn't have fabric, nothing happened. And so uh, it, it's a, uh, yeah, it, it, it's a it, supply chain hasn't been our problem. Uh, we've we, we had a little hiccup here or there. It's really been all about throughput, and we've we've been able to you know do things in our facility to support that. But you know, at the same time, we put every stitch into every tent we make right here. I mean, I have to have people that do that, and and you know, Marcus, you cannot go down to the bus station and pick somebody up that can make a tent. Yeah, you it's know, it's have, it's a skill set. It absolutely is, and I've heard um, some other people say the same thing too. Is you know you can't just it, it's 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 a trade, right? Like like anything, like you're not just going to pull someone yep. off the bus stop, like you said, to come and fix your toilet or you know uh, right. do some wiring in your house, right? Like it's a it's a skilled trade, and you know the older I get in life, and I mean I, I did the whole college thing and you know, thought that it was what I needed. And it's certainly been beneficial and I don't regret any of that. But, you know, in some of the the career paths that I've had throughout the years, I've come across a, a lot of skilled tradesmen and their, you know, knowledge that they have, um, you know, machining, manufacturing, all these things is just, I mean, I you, you can never get that in a textbook, in a classroom. I mean, it's this real world experience that, uh, you have to do it to, to gain it, right? It's 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 not something that can be taught, at least in a book. Yeah. No, no, that's right. And I, the other thing that I, have, I mean, we have a, I mean, we have a truly amazing staff here. But and when you take people, uh, you, you know, and some of them have been here 
two years, some have been here 10, 20, 30 years. But when you take people that, you know, are as just, you know, good people, have a good work ethic, it's, it's amazing how they can rise to the occasion and make things happen that you never thought was possible inside of your own facility uh, and then do it day after day. And, uh, you know, it's been, it's been exciting. It's been rewarding for everybody. I mean, we've never had so much overtime. Uh, we've paid bonuses seven quarters in a row and are about to pay them eight quarters in a row uh, to our people to help reward them for, you know, their amazing accomplishments. I mean, I, I'm just, uh, you know, to be around the people that I'm around and the community we get to serve. I mean, I seriously, I get to do this every day. Yeah. It just amazes me. <laughs> and I think, you know, I think there's a, a lot of people out there, a lot of employees out there like that, that have that drive, that have that, that work ethic that, you know, nose to the grindstone, you know, I don't want to say like do as they're told, but they know what it takes to get the job done. But I think it takes a certain type of leader to unlock that in people. Right. And I think, I mean, like you said, seven going on eight quarters in a row of, you know, paying out the employees. I mean, I think that that's at least from where I sit, a, a direct, you know, reflection of, of the leadership team that you guys have there that, you know, people are willing to do that and that you've had, you know, people that have been there as long as they have. I mean, that's, that's kind of how I can tell the mark of a, of a good company is kind of by the tenure of, you know, a majority of their employees. And, and I get any company is going to have turnover, right? I mean, that's, that's just the way things are. But when you have, you know, 60, 65, 70% of your employee base are all, you know, tenured to some degree. I mean, to me, that speaks volumes about uh, the upper management that, you know, and just the general culture of a company. You know, every one of us here, I mean, I, I, every one of us here works in this business. I mean, obviously I have things that I need to do that are different than other people and aren't as obvious and seen, right? I'm not so intense, uh, but every one of us here is involved, you know, whether it's me being involved in the final quality control uh, or helping out, you know, in our flies and floors department uh, or, being a part of the repair days we do. So we have a really flat organization. Uh, anybody that is part of, I don't, whether it's upper management or call it whatever, you know, leadership team, or whatever, uh, if they didn't come in here to contribute to our manufacturing facility, then somehow we allowed them to land in the wrong place. So, you know, there's a real team atmosphere. And I have to tell you that our turnover is almost all about my people inside the building, like another sower saying, you're not doing your job. So they, there is such an expectation level amongst the people here that everybody come in, you know, and contribute every day. It's a, like I said, it's a, it's really, I, I can't, I feel like it gets cheesy in a hurry, but I, <laughs> I, I, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I, it, it sounds like that, but I, I really feel like, uh, I'm, I'm, a you know, we're all lucky here to be here with, uh, with this group of people. And, and, and the other thing I'd like to say just briefly is I agree with you, especially on the fact that 
you know, having a high-functioning team is really about respect at every level. Whatever that task is that that's per- that person's doing, they have to know that I'm not more important than them. They're contributing. Just we have different jobs, but we all contribute in a different way. And I think that's really people have. I mean, obviously, we all want to be respected and you know feel good about where we're going every day. We spend so much time working. And so I really think that's the magic is people knowing that what they do is important and they're really contributing to something cool. Yeah, no, I completely agree. So, Will, I know you guys are based uh, out of Denver there. So how is it? I mean, are you originally from Colorado or from that area? No, I'm a I'm originally from near Madison, Wisconsin. Okay, Midwest boy. And, uh, I like it. Midwest boy, Midwest boy. I, I still, even some of my, even though some of my Western hunters uh, don't respect whitetail hunting as much as I do. <laughs> <laughs> Let them sit in the tree stand from day till, from daybreak till, <laughs> you know, daylight and 15, 20 degree weather and then come talk to me. Exactly. I mean, they're talking about all their lightweight materials. I'm like, I don't need lightweight. I need warm. Yes. <laughs> uh, I do. Uh, I've uh, been in Colorado since uh, the late nineties. Uh, I've, I, when I moved out here, I had never, well, I can't say I'd never been west of the Mississippi because I think my parents might have taken me to North Dakota one time, uh, but not very far west of the Mississippi. But I can't, I don't know why. I don't know if it was reading, you know, in magazines when I was a kid. I was always enamored by the West. And literally, we made the decision to move out here. I'd never even, Maybe I'd flown to Stapleton at the time it was Stapleton Airport in uh, Denver, but I'd never done anything out west. And uh, so we made the move, and my wife was uh, game to at least give it a try. And, yeah, we've stayed, and we've loved it, and we raised our family here. And so, yeah, we just kind of made the move and have uh, embraced everything everything out west. Yeah, I mean – so I'm, I'm in Michigan here, so I'm a Midwest kid as well. Uh, but I'm, I'm pretty fortunate that, you know, I get to come out to Colorado usually at least two, maybe three times a year. Um, we usually come out skiing for, for a week or so. Uh, we have some friends that live uh, kind of in the Denver suburbs there uh, that we'll come out and see pretty regularly. Uh, and then usually uh, like summertime, we'll come out and see them and I'll get a chance to do some fly fishing and stuff like that. And it's, I haven't been able to come out out west and, and do any hunting yet um, with a couple of young kids. It's it's a little tricky uh, at this particular <laughs> yeah. time. Uh, but yeah, the west is. I mean, there's just and don't get me wrong. I mean, growing up uh, in the Midwest, especially states like Wisconsin and Michigan, I mean, there's there's really uh, no shortage of things to do. But when you get out west, you just you get the opportunity to to do them on a much larger scale, right? Yeah, you do, and and I don't, and and by the way, I am a huge fan of the Midwest, and I kind of grew up uh, uh, doing week ten day uh, canoe trips into the Boundary Waters and Quetico, uh, and just into Ontario, uh, and so you know everything that we did, almost everything that we did as kids was you know my my dad gave us opportunities to do outdoor things, so. Uh, and was a real uh, conservationist and uh, believed in uh, making sure that you leave things better than what you found them. And so uh, I, I'm 
so the out the idea of you know living an outdoor lifestyle i'm doing it in a different area with different kinds of opportunities uh than i grew up but that is it's how i grew up is spending time outdoors yeah and i feel like that's maybe it was the the era in 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 which we grew up um but it, and I've talked about this with with you know quite a few different guests over over the past year and a half is you know times are different then I mean you could just go play in the woods near your house right and no one you know no one really worried all that much you know come home when it starts to get dark type thing you know make sure you're home for dinner I mean there was no cell phones you know there was none of that stuff and it was just it was just different right and it's uh it's something that's unfortunate that we're really kind of not able to. Uh, take advantage of you know as much uh, these days uh, with just kind of the craziness of the world I guess and maybe the over protectiveness of, of parents I mean I, I know I'm that way right with with my kids and they're still like I said fairly young but it's uh it was a, it's a great way to grow up and I think you learn that appreciation for the outdoors you know that that outdoor lifestyle at such a young age that it it doesn't really have a choice but to stick with you as you get older yeah I mean uh, my dad was kind of a unique guy. He uh, loved the outdoors, but he was really more interested in making sure his boys had outdoor opportunities than he was about, you know, having the opportunity himself. So, like, when we were 10 years old, he bought us uh, bows, uh, Jennings Lightning Compound Bows, which were fairly early iterations of compound bows. And he'd never shot a bow in his life. Hmm. but he got them for us. And then he'd just say, okay, go hunting, have fun. Yeah. And, you know, he had taught us, you know, we had, we had hunted with uh, shotguns and rifles and things like that. But, you know, so he had taught us a good outdoor ethic and, you know, uh, ethical, you know, shots and so on and so forth. But yeah, he just gave us the opportunities to go out and do things. And we just, you know, we'd, go out in the morning before school we'd go out in the afternoon after school uh we'd get a ride to go hunting somewhere and yeah so he just gave us those opportunities and so you know a lot of what i did back in the midwest you know other than learning uh, a lot of the how to hunt and learning that when you go out in the mountains you're for five days or seven days you're going to go uphill both ways for all five or seven of those days uh at least it feels like that yeah you know i mean uh he really, you know, prepared us to, you know, just love being outside and going out and figuring out ourselves. So pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. So kind of keeping with the, the conservation uh, aspect of things, obviously Davis 10 is, is 2% certified. So can you tell me how it was that, uh, that you guys learned about 2%? Yeah. Good question. I'm not sure I can answer. <laughs> <laughs> I know that, I know that uh, Taylor came to me uh who's part of our leadership team and uh had somehow discovered two percent and you know uh my my first thought was well there's never been a time in davis 10 history where we weren't two percent certified uh you know i mean that's part of the you know ethic of the company uh you know we make tens of thousands of dollars worth of product and tents every year for rocky mountain health foundation and uh, Mule Deer Foundation, Mule Fanatics, and all other kinds of 
outdoor organizations uh, and uh, veteran organizations. So, you know, it's <clears throat> it, it wasn't, you know, a, a change as far as uh, what we do, but what it was was it was a way to, you know, say, hey, this is important to us, and I hope it puts pressure on others to say I'm 2% certified, you know. I'm doing things to give back. So I love the just the concept of it and uh, the idea of, you know, very outwardly expressing uh, to not just not our customers, even, not just our customers, to other outdoor companies that, hey, this resource, you know, that we have and the outdoors and the millions and millions of acres of public property that we have, I mean, just in Colorado, we have 19 million acres of our land that are managed for public use. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's there because of, because people are willing to stand behind it and, uh, make sure it's preserved. And so I, I just, it, it was a real, uh, I guess kind of a no brainer for us to there get involved it is. in 2%. The magic word, no brainer. I've, I get so many people that say that, and it just—it's like music to my ears, right? Like sometimes I feel like they don't want to say it, or it's like on the tip of their tongue, and then eventually it comes out. And to hear, you know, that Davis Tent was, you know, essentially two percent certified for the longest time. You guys just—it just wasn't, I guess, official, or there wasn't any organization like two percent out there to like kind of put their stamp of approval on it, saying, "Yep, I mean, you guys are—you're giving back time, you're giving back dollars." You know, you guys are doing, um, you know, the right things for for conservation for the outdoors. It, you know, we talked about it before we started recording that it's it's a tragedy that more companies that are directly tied to the outdoors and their you know their customers are, you know, they're using their products for hunting or fishing or primarily let's you know let's look at those two avenues that they're not giving back at all. Right. I mean, it's one thing if, um, you know, maybe they just decide not to become 2% certified, but they're doing those necessary things. They're giving back. Um, you know, it's it's part of the, the company ethic, like you said, that it is there. But it, you know, they're, it's just, it's, it's criminal, man. It, I, I don't want to go on too much of a rant here, but it's just, they're, well. you know, to have companies like Davis Tent and, you know, the, you know, dozens of other 2% certified companies that, that see the value and the importance of it. I mean, it's, it's certainly something that, that other, other companies should, should strive to be a part of, even if they don't become certified, right? Like they should make giving back uh, part of the company culture. Yeah. And I think it's important for brands, you know, like, you know, well-respected products like the Davis, like Davis Kent, like our Kent, we, by being part of 2%, more, it's more important to me, you know, knowing that we're a leader, the leader in the industry, that we put pressure on other people in our industry because they see what we're doing from a leadership position. And so it might not change what we do because it's what we've done and it's more than 2%. But it certainly points out that it's important, and it and it, it's going to be recognized by others in the industry that I think will say, "Oh, they're doing that. Yeah, we should do that." Yeah, because you know, in this, uh, I feel like there's probably a lot of you know people that listen to to the podcast that, that probably feel the same way I do. Is that 
you know, if there's two companies and all things being equal, I'm going to go with the one that's, and one's 2% certified. I mean, it's, it's no longer even a discussion or a thought at that point. It's, you know, cause I know that not only am I going to get a quality product, but I know that, you know, that company is, is doing the right thing, you know, long after, um, you know, I've, I've purchased from them, right. That they're, that they're going to, you know, I, again, I guess, you know, just make the right decision in terms of wildlife. And, you know, that's, that's always something that I can support and that I can get behind. Yeah. And I think it's probably, you know, it's kind of really makes it even more important as a, as a USA, as a proud USA manufacturer, you know, we have to be in committed to protecting our resources. And so uh, I think those things just go together so perfectly. Uh, yeah. That it speaks, it certainly, it speaks to our audience. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, given, I, I mean, again, without getting, I guess, you know, political, but just given the, the landscape of the United States over the past, you know, five years, let's say six years, um, you know, people are, are certainly more cognizant of, you know, where their, their products are coming from and they want to support, um, you know, companies that are, you know, doing their business in the U S they're, they're, you know, 100% U S manufactured, um, goods and, you know, and like you said, that, that just goes hand in hand with, with conservation, you know, really the, well, just the also, U.S. Yeah, absolutely. And I think of like, if you look at the, I'm, I'm an archer, I primarily bow hunt. Uh, if you look at what's happened in the uh, bow hunting industry, where there's been this convergence of uh, fitness, uh, where uh, the huge growth is among women and youth, in, mm-hmm. in uh, archery and bow hunting uh you know these are people that come from you know the outside of the traditional male dominated hunting industry and so i think there are also going to be people that are that, that bring in uh different ideals into the hunting industry and so i think they're going to be uh, just naturally it's going to be more important to them that, you know, the part, what, what they're a part of is, is part of uh, making sure that our, our public lands and whatnot are taken care of uh, better than, better than ever because there's more pressure than there's ever been on them. And so, yeah, I think it all just kind of, it, it all works together and with, and, and even outside of archery hunting, uh, there's obviously been a lot more people that have uh, gotten into the hunting industry over the last or into hunting uh, over the last uh, few years. And I think those people are going to be not that hunters haven't always been. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm just saying, I think these people bring ideals that are even more tailor made uh, for that support. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, uh, the, I guess kind of the, the totality of the outdoors and the entire landscape, like it's, it's certainly going through a, a shift right now with, like you said, with, um, you know, more people, uh, getting involved in the outdoors that did not grow up in it, getting a lot of their information, uh, and a lot of just ideas behind the outdoors and hunting and angling, you know, from social media, because it's, you know, everything is so readily accessible now, you know, like, I mean, there's podcasts on, you know, beginning to deer hunt. There's podcasts on, I mean, you can find a podcast on anything. Hell, I mean, we're, we're sitting here talking about <laughs> conservation, right? And, you know, probably five, 10 years ago, there was, you know, nothing of the sort. And I'm not saying I'm like groundbreaking or, or anything like that, but right. there's, there's just a, if there's something you're interested in, you can likely find 
some type of resource to to gain that that knowledge um, in order to kind of give you that comfort to to step into that that arena, I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's I think it's terrific. And I think that the outward expression of that is important. And I think that's really the, where that two percent of conservation comes in for us is to just stand up and say, "Hey, this is part of who we are. It should be a part of who you are." Yeah. So uh, you kind of touched on it a little bit there, but what are some of the organizations that you guys are giving back to? Well, we, uh, you know, we deal with from a veteran outdoor organization standpoint. I mean, we love, uh, we love to do things with veteran organizations that are also involved in the outdoors. Uh, One of the places where we spend a significant amount of time is camp healing waters, uh, which is, uh, disabled veterans and getting them out on, you know, fishing trip of a lifetime, really. Uh, so that's pretty neat. Uh, we also uh, do things with Camp Gratitude and a whole bunch of other, you know, we tend to work with uh, smaller veteran organizations that, you know, they're not the ones that that everybody's heard of, but that are doing just super great work uh, with veterans. So that's one of the things that, you know, we're really we're really proud of. Uh, we've always uh, had a, an immense amount of support for individual chapters of Rocky Mountain Health Foundation. So across the country, we donate to hundreds of individual chapters, uh, oftentimes, you know, an entire tent set up uh, for their banquet, or it might be cots, or, you know, we make sleeping bag covers and a whole bunch of other things. But uh, so we do a ton of donations. Uh, to the Rocky Mountain Health Foundation, the Mule Deer Foundation. Uh, we support them in a big way, including uh, the uh, Western Hunting and Conservation Show in Salt Lake, uh, where we give tents to them uh, for, uh, you know, raffle or, uh, or however they're, they're handling those tent giveaways. Uh, Muley Fanatics. Uh, we, we, we support pheasant organizations, fishing organizations. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, our, just our, our product giveaway far exceeds 2%, uh, you know, in the 2% for conservation. Uh, we had to actually count our hours to make sure that we qualified on the, (laughs) (laughs) on the hour side of it, because as busy as we've been over the last couple of years, it's been a little bit harder to, commit days, you know, uh, outside of the office. But yeah, that's, that's kind of a, I'm, I'm missing, a, you know, a hundred organizations when I paint with that broad of a brush, but, uh, yeah, we're, we're involved in a lot of, uh, you know, friends, of the NRA, for instance. Yeah. And the, one of the things that I like, and I've had a few guests recently that have talked about it, but working with veteran organizations, I think it's just super cool. Um, you know, while I, I've never served uh, in the military or any uh, or anything along those lines. You know, I, I think that the importance of of veterans in the U.S. Um, cannot be understated. Uh, you know, the the sacrifices that they've made. Um, you know, some of the uh, situations that these um, veterans, whether uh, disabled or not have, have been through, uh, in their time overseas is, is something that, you know, I know that I'll, I'll never even 
you know, come close to understanding, right? And to to give them uh, an opportunity to to try to heal, you know, through the outdoors. Um, and it's something I've certainly seen a lot more of is giving them those those opportunities to, you know, in some instances, especially in like hunting, you know, using some of those skills that, you know, they acquired in all of those, you know, years of training in the military uh, and, you know, put it to use in a different application and is it's just a really cool thing to see and and anyone who's who's doing work with with veteran organizations uh i think is 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 super commendable and it's absolutely the right thing to do it's so important i mean you know you think of what you talked about and then wrap that up into uh families and and sometimes and oftentimes we work with the disabilities you know that go with it i mean it's uh you know, there's so much tied up from a mental standpoint and some of the things that they have had to deal with. And I just, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, yeah, it's, it's an important, these guys have put it all on the line for, for all of us to be able to enjoy the lifestyles that we're doing and, or that we're having. And so we, uh, really feel strongly about supporting those organizations for sure. Yeah, no, I, I agree. So, well, just a couple more things here before uh, before I let you get back to it. Is there, well, I guess, is there any kind of like big, like conservation issues uh, that kind of the state of Colorado faces? Uh, I guess kind of one that that jumps out to me is the the reintroduction of wolves uh, in Colorado that I know was on the ballot. Was that last year? Yeah, yeah. Is yep, it, it was last year. It was really close. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. That's yeah. That was kind of what I was asking. Yeah, it it passed, and uh, you know, obviously, I mean, we this is something else that you know we put a pretty significant amount of money behind, and it was an extremely close vote. And uh, you know, it's a it's a big concern. I mean, Colorado has numerous concerns. Uh, Another individual issue is you know, our bear population is very high. We're practically giving away bear tags here. Uh, we have no spring bear hunt uh, anymore, and that's uh, certainly contributed. And so that's an individual issue. Uh, there's some big picture issues like the Colorado Parks Department was merged with the Department of Wildlife which I think is suboptimal <laughs> from a hunting interest standpoint. Uh, so, yeah, just like many Western states, uh, Colorado has some, Colorado hunters uh, have some uh, very big issues in front of them. And uh, if there's ever been a time to be involved and let your voice be heard, you know, uh, my contacts uh, in Colorado with the Rocky Mountain Health Foundation are always begging people to show up at hearings and whatnot. And I would just really encourage people across the country. I mean, you know, you look at what kind of an impact we can have from a citizen legislation standpoint just by letting our voice be heard. Right. Uh, you know, the, the smallest things make a big difference. I mean, the bottom line is a lot of these legislative people they don't know anything about now this is normal they don't know anything about <laughs> what they're asked being asked to be voted on and so you know 
as hunters, and, and you know, a guy that's done some pretty incredible work on this is Randy Newman. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, listen, he has, listen to what he has, is saying. They're not hearing from us. And so who did they hear from instead? They hear from the, the people that are fired up that oppose what we're doing. So we're living a lifestyle, you know, you know, that, that has to do with outdoors and uh, conservation and hunting, but our voices, we're not expressing our voices to the people that are making the decisions. And so, you know, anything that can be done along those lines, whether it's writing an email, showing up at a hearing, uh, those things, they actually, it might feel like they don't matter, but don't be fooled. It does matter. And that's just what I would encourage people to do. You don't have to, you don't have to have your life revolve, revolve around it. Commit to writing two letters this year on uh, issues that are going to be in front of the legislature. Uh, commit to going to one or two hearings, you know, that might take three hours out of your day or something. Uh, you know, and, and if you get a chance, you know, just say two sentences worth. It doesn't even have to be eloquent. They just need to hear our voice and know that we exist and that we vote and that uh, we're concerned. Yeah, and, you know, it it doesn't take much for, you know, one thing gets passed that in the grand scheme of things or at the time it seems uh, small in the big picture. But I feel like once something like that happens, it can snowball into much larger things if we don't speak up. If we don't speak up for the small things, the small things become big things really quickly. Yeah, and I mean, all of this stuff is, it's its its really important, and yeah. we don't want to let it slip away, and I don't want to be negative about it. I just want to encourage people that, hey, get out there. Your voice really does matter. These people, these legislative people are not, they're not experts on these issues. They're not hearing from a bunch of people. And if, you know, if one person, five people, ten people, uh, stand up and say something that's bigger representation than we've ever had before. Right. <laughs> it's, it's something, I mean, you can literally make a difference as an individual without making it your avocation or, you know, making it something that's, you know, taking, you know, tens of hours out of your life. So I would just encourage people, Hey, don't, don't think, you don't, don't, don't think that your voice doesn't matter. It really does. And, uh, yeah, we, we really have the opportunity to make a difference. Yeah. And one thing I like kind of to piggyback off that is there's a lot of these uh, conservation organizations out there are making it much easier for you to do that. They're supplying you with emails and phone numbers, uh, you know, through email blasts and things like that to their members where it's like, hey, you know, call call this representative, write an email to this representative. Uh, Here's their email address about, you know, your opposition or your support for whatever um, bill uh, is being you know proposed or, or talked about or anything like that. So we've certainly made it. Um, our organizations are certainly trying to make it much easier for their membership um, to be active and involved in that. Yeah, and it, it really does matter to call. You know, find out who your state legislator are are if you don't know. Uh, I got to admit, I didn't know when we got into this whole pandemic situation. And it's the first thing I did when I got back from that trip to Oregon where the trade show was canceled. I figured out who they were and started making phone calls. And you know what? Even though there were three particular people that I talked to, all of them 
are on a different political thought process than I'm personally on, but one of them made all the difference in the world in keeping our business open. Yeah. And so they're out there and they're listening and, and uh, you don't, they don't have to necessarily agree with everything, but we have a lot of things in common. Everybody likes big undulates. <laughs> they like elk, <laughs> they like deer, you know, they like moose, uh, whether they're hunters or not. But very few of those people understand to what degree hunting or the North American Wildlife Plan impacts the ability to see and enjoy those animals. Yeah, no, uh, you're absolutely so there, right. There's a, there's, you know, there's impact, there's, there's uh, relationships here. You know, if you make circles, there's interlocking circles. And you find those areas where they interlock, you focus on those areas when you care about the same things. And uh, yeah, good things can happen. Yeah. Yeah, very, very well put. I won't even try to add to that. So one more thing here, Will, before I let you get out of here. I know we're kind of nearing the end of hunting season, but did you uh, have any real big trips or success this year or anything maybe planned for next year that you're uh, looking forward to? Yeah, you know, I did have some great trips this year. Uh, I was, I did not harvest uh, an elk. I didn't do any rifle hunting. I had a, but I really had, you know, I was in the uh, western slope of Colorado uh, in the, between Meeker and Craig area, and uh, I was I was in close. I just uh, never never was able to release an arrow because I I could have I could have, but I wasn't quite comfortable. Uh, at 18 yards, I'm pretty sure I can I can hit my spot, but uh, <laughs> I didn't quite have I didn't quite have the angle I wanted, and I couldn't quite get it into that position. So I I passed on I passed on a shot. And I, I actually. Uh, the biggest elk I'd personally seen in that area. Wow. So it was a tough one not to, I was, I was drawn for, it felt like 10 minutes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not sure if it was a minute or a minute and a half or how long it took or how long it was, but uh, I didn't, didn't, uh, so I didn't take an elk. Uh, and I did have a really, I, I had a couple of whitetail experiences, uh, archery hunting. I, I wasn't able to harvest a real nice uh, whitetail and, I took my boys uh, hunting, and uh, one of them also shot a really nice white tail. And so we really were fortunate to harvest a couple of nice animals and uh, spend some spend some great time together. Yeah, and that's what it's all about. No, that's that's super cool to hear. Well, Will, thank you so much for taking some time today. I really enjoyed speaking with you, learning more about Davis Tent, and then you know just also. You know, kind of getting to discuss conservation as well. I was, uh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Great talking to you too, Marcus. And if we can, uh, we can ever do anything for for you along the way, just let us know. We'll help you out anywhere we can. Yeah, absolutely. Likewise. Well, thank you again, and uh, enjoy your holidays. Yep. Take care. All right. All right. Well, thanks again to Will for joining me today. I would also like to thank the partners of the podcast. Wild Rivers Coffee, Stone Glacier, Go Hunt, as well as 2% for Conservation. And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And there you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to follow 2% on social media where they're going to post only positive content so you'll enjoy that conservation-focused posts uh, in your feed. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Stay tuned. 
for another episode next week, which will likely be uh, our last uh, before the new year here. So remember, stay safe out there and conservation starts with you.